Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. I want to ask you if the Spirit prompts you at all during this service today to be in prayer for me, to lift up my thought and my mind's my hands to the Lord in prayer. I have a, a message that the Lord has put on my heart I've never shared before, and uh, I just don't know exactly where God wants to take us. I've got thoughts, but there's thoughts that are locked up in my spirit that I don't know how to say. So you just ask the Lord for help today as I endeavor to stand in His stead, to stand before you. I want us to look in uh, John's first epistle, the, the Apostle John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> we have uh, Bibles at the back on those little circular tables. They're um, the English Standard Version. Uh, I picked one up this morning because I left mine at home. <clears throat> so let's see, First uh, John 2.19, there we go, it's page 1022. Sure enough, there we are. All right, everybody find that? We're going to read the entire chapter, 1 John 3. And uh, would you mind standing again in reverence to God's Word? See what kind of love, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So as in so many of the epistles in the New Testament, Paul and John, they begin with a doctrinal section and then follows the application. And verse 11 begins the application. The doctrine was how much God loves us and we need to live our life out of a response of the love of the Father for us. And verse 11 urges us to love one another. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If I were to ask you what's wrong with this world, what would you say? All of us know that there's a serious problem, don't we? What is it? What's the problem? What's the core issue? If you could get rid of one thing, what would you get? What would you eliminate? If you could fix the problem, how would you fix it? Right now in France and in England and Africa and the United States, law enforcement and government leaders are looking for core issues behind the Islamic terrorist attacks. And they're addressing the question, what's causing this? What's behind this terrorism? What's wrong with this world? What should we get rid of? How can we fix this problem of violence? I saw a sign the other day that asked the question, if Cain killed Abel with a rock, does that mean the rock is the problem? Is that it? Do we have a rock problem? Is that what's wrong with the world? We need to get rid of rocks? I have a a movie clip um, from the old movie called um, Never Cry Wolf. It's a story about an animal biologist who came to Alaska. His name is Tyler. He came to investigate the theory that that the wolves were behind the cause of the decline of caribou herds. And so Tyler hires this crazy, carefree um, bush pilot to fly him into the caribou range to study why that we're losing the caribou, but he's keeping the purpose of his trip secret, hidden from the pilot. They're flying over the mountains, and then suddenly the engine on this small plane sputters, and Tyler screams out, What's wrong? And I want you to hear 
the solution that's um, suggested by this pilot. Maybe some of you have seen this movie. Can we, can we show that? Got it up? Uh, how do you... Uh, uh... Ah, don't worry about a thing. I feel my way through these mountains blindfolded all the time. Tell me, Tyler. What's in the Valley of the Blackstone? What is it, manganese? Can't be oil. Is it gold? It's kind of hard to say. <laughs> uh, you're a smart man, Tyler. Keep your own counsel. We're all of us. Prospectors up here, eh, Tyler? <laughs> scratching for that, for that one crack in the ground. I'll never have to scratch again. I'll let you know a little secret, Tyler. The gold's not in the ground. Gold's not anywhere up here. The real gold is south of 60. Sitting in living rooms. Stuck. Facing the boob tube, bored to death. Bored to death, Tyler. That's it, you learn fast. 
So there's an illustration of an answer, a solution, a recommendation. It identifies our problem as boredom, and maybe that is near to the issue. Our hearts were created for something, something bigger, something better, something pure, something more wonderful than what we can find in this world, and we're longing for something more. And uh, what, do you, what, again, I ask, do you think is wrong with our world? What would you eliminate? Rocks? Boredom? What would it be? What if we could ask God that question? I wonder what he would say. I wonder what God would want to get rid of. What would he say the core problem is in our world? and How would he fix it? Do you remember that old, uh, hearing that old children's rhyme about the horseshoe nail? Maybe some of you um, English teachers remember this old poem. It's uh, titled, For the Want of a Nail. And it's a clever set of lyrics that encourages children to apply logical progression to see the consequences of their actions and where it leads to. And Benjamin Franklin included this little rhyme in his uh, um, Poor Richard's Almanac. Here's how it goes. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. The lack of a horseshoe nail was the tipping point that caused the kingdom to fall. It caused the chain of events that produced huge consequences. If ever we needed the Lord's discernment and insight to see, to understand the horseshoe nail, what it is, what's that, the tipping point, what's behind it all, we need that discernment today. We need it in the times we're living in. Our generation needs it, and we need it right now, right here this morning. And so my prayer is that God will give us insight from his mind to concentrate on the causes rather than to trifle with the symptoms, to transform us into the, the essential of what he wants created on us rather than tinkering with the trivial, to dive into the depths rather than to dabble on the surface of things. Did you know that Jesus came to our world to get rid of the root problem, to get to the core issue, to get to the horseshoe nail? He came to deal with what is most essential. And there's a verse in this chapter we read in John's first epistle that tells us why Jesus came to the world. It's found in the second part of verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come to our world? That's the theme we're looking at during this Christmas season. Why did he come? Why did he come? What I feel pressed in my spirit to look at this morning is Paul, I mean, John's answer to that question here in this verse, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. 
You see, Christmas is about the clash of two kingdoms. The, it's about the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth and what it t- took for Jesus to, to establish that kingdom on earth. And this verse, verse 8, is set in the middle of a wonderful chapter. That's why I read the entire chapter. And it's a chapter that describes God's great dream for this world. That, it be a, that this world be a place that is established on His righteousness of love. But there's a problem, isn't there? There's a clash of two kingdoms. There's a, a protagonist in our world. In this love story, there's an evil one who is in complete rebellion against a world that perfectly displays the glory of God's love. But there's a sure foundation of hope, John says in this chapter that we read. There's a foundation of hope that there's a better world coming. That there's a a renewal of all things coming. That when we see Jesus, it's going to be perfect. And verse 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one, the works of the devil. Jesus came to crush this rebellion. Now here's a very broad, rough theological summary of this chapter, of what John is teaching in chapter 3. The first thing is that God has a vision for our world to be established on his attribute of love. That's what he says in verse 1. And then he says that if we embrace God's vision for the renewal of all things in our world, then it will become a source of great hope. It will be a source of great hope. Is there anyone here this morning that is feeling hopeless? That you just feel drained of hope? That you need hope? This is what I believe God wants to do for us this morning here at Cornerstone. He wants to pour a gully washer of hope into our hearts. And the scripture says that this is a source of hope. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it's our hope in Jesus is like an anchor for the soul. We're living in a time and an age and a generation that's anchorless. It's not tied to anything. No eternal truths. But there's a truth here that if we can get a hold of, it will help us get through our days. And that is this, that if we embrace God's vision for the renewal of all things in this world, the kingdom that He is is inaugurating and is coming to our world, then it will become a source of great hope and it will keep us steady. And John says it will clean up a lot of issues in our life. He says it will keep us pure. To keep our mind fixed upon this hope that is coming. Now I was thinking about this this morning. That that this Christmas season for a lot of people is like a dream. There's a dream of Christmas. A a dream of Christmas that is sort of like a fairy tale. And there's, there's the investment of a lot of hope that Christmas will give our hearts that thing that we're aching for and longing for and that that restlessness that emptiness that boredom that we have that that all of a sudden christmas will supply what we're lacking and what we're needing but john is saying unless we understand 
why Jesus came and what Jesus came to do and what he did when he came, that we will not have the hope that we're expecting to get out of Christmas, that Christmas time brings out the kingdom heart that God has put in us. Everybody is longing for Christmas to come in our life. We're longing for Christmas to come in our world. We're desiring that that perfect day, that perfect age, that perfect fulfillment of of every restless dream we've ever had. We want to be perfectly fulfilled. And that's the beauty of Christmas. And what the message of one of the, the meanings behind that is what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in our hearts. And the reason why we have so many shows on TV about the beauty of Christmas and the loveliness of Christmas and the fairy tale of this Christmas spirit is because our hearts are longing for God's kingdom coming to earth. But our hopes will only be materialized and 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 hope will only can only be experienced we can only know the joy of a hope that is rooted in the reality of the truth of jesus christ and what he has come to do and then the third thing that john is teaching us in this chapter is that the devil is in rebellion against this hope the devil is in rebellion against anything that displays the righteousness of god He's in rebellion against the the spread of God's glory over this earth. He's he's an enemy against this heart that God has given us for his kingdom. That eternity is set in our hearts and he's out to destroy that and ruin that. And rob us from discovering the fulfillment of that desire we all have in our hearts. But then John says that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of God. Of the devil. And then the fifth thing he teaches us here is that our world will endure. Our world will continue on. Our world will be that complete fulfillment of the great dream and vision that God has for it and why he created in the first place only by the application of his attribute of love. God's kingdom will be established on earth when we learn to live like God and not like the devil. So let's take a closer micro look at the meaning of the text that we're looking at in verse 8 where it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Well, John describes the work of the devil in the first half of the verse. He said, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So the works of the devil is an enticement of the human race into the practice of sinning. Well, what is sin? Well, John defines sin for us in verse 4. He said in 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? That's what sin is. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. And to understand how this started, and we have to go back to the story of Genesis in Genesis 1.28, where it says that God originally created Adam. He created, put people on the earth to fill and to rule the earth, to fill the earth 
and to rule the earth. So people were put on this earth to express the glory of God's loving governance over the earth, to establish God's kingdom of righteousness on the earth. This was God's great dream, and it still is. But Satan tempted Adam to rebel against God's wonderful plan. And Adam fell, and he expressed, or rather, he failed then to express godly dominion over God's creation. And since the fall, mankind has repeatedly sought to rule the world, to live in the world, and take governance over the world without first being ruled by God. And that's our problem. Trying to live in the world, run the things of the, of the world, the affairs of the world, to govern the world without first coming under the rule of God. And we can't do that. The world is not designed to operate that way. And so John says in 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that's the problem. It is the work of the devil in our hearts that needs to be fixed. And the work of the devil is the spirit of lawlessness. Sin at its core is an attitude of lawlessness towards God. It's a refusal to be ruled by God. And the devil's one ambition is to destroy our confidence in God's loving kindness. It is... He entices us to take God lightly, to discredit God, to doubt God, to question God. And 1 John 5.19 says, This world lies in the power of the evil one. That's our current situation. The evil one stirs up a lie, deceives humanity, and catches us up in his rebellion. And this brings the whole world under the power of that evil one. And his constant occupation is to run interference between God and the children whom God loves. The devil entices us into this rebellion by deception. He gets us to believe a lie. He tells us that you come from nothing, that you're going nowhere, and you're accountable to no one. You come from nothing, you're going nowhere, and you're accountable to no one. But John tells us that this spirit of rebellion is an attitude that fights against the love of God. The, the evil one is trying to cover up the true nature and character of God and cause us to doubt the fact that he loves us. He doesn't want this world to be a place that displays the glory of God's love. And love is the one thing that fulfills that empty heart that we long for. Love is the, the love of the Father is the only thing that will satisfy that restless boredom that we have in our hearts. As Augustine says, St. Augustine is famous for having said, My heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So if the work of the devil looks like rebellion, I wonder what the work of God looks like. We're talking about the clash of two kingdoms today. 
How will Jesus fix this problem? Notice how 1 John chapter 3 begins. It begins with the description of love. John urges us to see, to know, to look at. Turn your eyes away from the other stuff that you're trying to find to satisfy that empty heart. He says, and see what kind of love the Father has given to you. That is the doctrine in this chapter. The core central character of God is a heart of love. That's what we need to believe. Satan's going to try and make us doubt the love of God. And if he can get us to question the love of God, then it will, it will produce all kinds of applications in our life of behavior that goes the wrong way. But if we can begin to believe in the love of God and live out of the belief of that, our behavior will begin to reflect the love that God has for us. And so the first half of the chapter is doctrine, that God loves his children. And then verse 11 comes the application, because belief is always witnessed to through our behavior. And your heart, my friend, was made for union with God. Your heart was made to dance with the Trinity, to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy the relationship of the Godhead, to be embraced in this love story. And I believe the Spirit of God would like to urge us and call each of us this morning to dive deep into the infinite vastness and blessedness of God's loving kindness. That is His kingdom that He dreams to have on planet earth. And that is the kingdom that is coming. And that is why we are urged by Jesus to pray every day, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because the will of the Father is a world that is filled with His divine attribute, of love. And verse 11 begins the practical section that explains how followers of God should live a life that manifests God's love, where the attribute of God is manifestant in our world by an embodied witness of his people living out the character and the nature of God in our world. You see, the work of God looks like love. God's vision for our world is a kingdom that is governed by love, not by hate, not by revenge, but by love. And the work of the devil is rebellion against that wonderful vision. He will block us from seeing it. The scripture says several times that he has veiled us so that we can't see the the glory of God. And he replaces that vision with a counterfeit vision. And the devil wants to spread a kingdom that is diametrically in rebellion against the healing power of God's love. So the way that God wants this world to work is by love. And this is what your kingdom heart longs to have and to live in. God has set eternity in our heart and you're longing for a healing, a perfect healing. All of our addictions and all of our preoccupations, our, 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 all of our distractions, 
are a result of a longing in our heart for, for a perfection that is coming yet ahead. Verse 23 says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and we love one another just as he commanded us. See, followers of Christ choose to believe in Jesus as the manifestation of love in this world, that God came to our world to show us how much God loves us, that God came in the flesh to show us what he is like. And we treat one another then in this God-like, sacrificial manner, not selfish, but sacrificially, like Jesus did. And this idea of this kind of love is radical. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. And this is how God has designed our world to work. This is His great dream for our world. And will only our world will endure by the application of God's attribute of love. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13, that love endures. Love is the thing that endures. And this world is going to endure. God is going to renew all things. And when He comes, peace will come to our world. That's why we have in Isaiah chapter 9, let's look in Isaiah chapter 9. Let's turn, turn our, our eyes to Isaiah chapter 9. This is a wonderful verse of Scripture. Matter of fact, if you were to memorize one verse of Scripture for this Christmas season, maybe this would be a good one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's page 573. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And what shall be on his shoulder? The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <laughs> you know, those, those holy goosebumps just went down my spine as I was reading that. I don't know if you got it. It's so exciting. But here's the verse I want to draw your eyes to. So this is a prophecy of Jesus coming. And the government, the kingdom of God he will inaugurate the kingdom of God. The government will be on his shoulders. And here's what verse 7 says. And of the increase of his government and of his peace and of peace, there will be no end. No end. No end. See, that's what our hope is rooted in and fixed in. This promise that we have. The, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ who came to establish God's kingdom on earth. And it will not end. Friends, we need to hold on by faith. We need to set our hope on the return of Jesus Christ who is going to complete what he started when he came. For he came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you believe that? I believe God's people need to believe that in the day that we're living in. Our world is a clash between two kingdoms. Now, the, the second part of this message, it looks like I've just got a few minutes left. Let me hurry through this to give you a panoramic overview of the kingdom of God in the Bible. I believe that the kingdom of God is the key to understanding the message of the, God, the Bible. We just saw one of those verses in the prophecy of Isaiah that the government shall be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of his 
of peace. There shall be no end. Our world is an arena of engagement between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's a war going on in our world, and this is the war that lies behind all wars. Since God and Satan operate in a spiritual dimension, this is a war that exists in the spiritual realm. It's beyond the natural. It's supernatural. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's a battle for our heart, for the seat of our affection. And the kingdom of God embodies and reflects the nature of God, the attributes of God, what God is like, His righteousness, His nature of love. The kingdom of Satan embodies or reflects the nature of the evil one, his evil, rebellious nature. But Jesus Christ came to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and he inaugurated a king, the kingdom of heaven on earth by disarming and destroying the domain of Satan. In the Old Testament, Genesis begins with a description of a glorious and good original creation. Then chapter 3 describes the entrance of rebellious and destructive evil. A superhuman demonic person, an all-pervasive sinful influence that corrupted everything that God created good. And John says that this world lies now in the power of the evil one. Then the 12th chapter of Genesis is a wonderful chapter because it begins to describe what God is going to do to restore this world back to his original dream. And he calls out a man named Abraham to begin this process of renewing all things. He calls a people, a nation, to follow him, to be his people. He describes them in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, a kingdom of priests. He calls them a holy nation. What's that mean? It means that they had a kingdom agenda. They were to be set apart to live a distinctive way of life. They were to, to be mediators of the divine mission on earth to restore God's glory over all the earth, to become the visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God, God's righteousness over every facet of life. They were called to reflect God's glory, to live under the rule of God, to be a people that would manifest what it's like to be cared for, to be governed by a wonderful, loving Father in heaven. They were described as a holy nation, to be a distinct people under the rule of God, to form a commonwealth on earth in which the holy and righteous will of God would be exercised in all aspects of life and they'd be completely devoted and set apart to God as a nation that was holy and a nation that would be holy, a nation like that, a nation that would live and operate under the governance of, the, of a loving kindness of a heavenly father would stand out, wouldn't it? It'd be a witness to the rest of the world. It would be an enticement for the rest of the world to want to be a part of a relationship like that. But Israel did not live up to that deep dream in the heart of God. They failed because their hearts, the Bible says, were not circumcised to God. They had a rebellious nature. They needed God's laws to be written on their hearts and minds. And the Old Testament is this panoramic story of of uh, redemptive history, of God's active concern to restore His glory over all the earth. And in every 
aspect of Israel's history, we read about God's urgent concern to forward this mission that he's not giving up. Because what Satan did in the Garden of Eden doesn't mean that he won. God intends to bring his will on earth, to establish his kingdom on earth, and he would do it with or without the full cooperation of his chosen nation. And yet throughout the Old Testament, there's this crimson thread, a prophetic hope, a messianic messianic promise that's woven through every page that God would counterattack the evil one by sending his eternal son. And so we come to the New Testament, to the four Gospels that connect Jesus as the fulfillment of this messianic promise. And we spent a lot of messages and Sundays last Christmas time talking about the fulfillment of how God kept his word and the connection between Old Testament prophecy and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But Jesus was born a Jew into the household of Israel to fulfill the story of God's glory. And the irony of his visitation was that he came to his own, but his own did not recognize him or receive him. And then John the Baptist announced that Jesus' coming would be the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And he said, repent, change your way of thinking, change your way of living. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the gospels begin to record what Jesus preached? What was his message? What did he come to say? What did he come to tell us? If we could ask God how to fix our problem, what would God say? Well, he sent his son to tell us all about what was in his heart and on his mind. Did you know that Jesus spoke about the kingdom more than any other subject? It appears more than a hundred times in the gospels. Matthew, it's found 52 times. Mark, 16 times. Luke 37 times and John four times. Jesus says, I must preach. What must you preach, Jesus? I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities because for this purpose I have been sent. The good news that Jesus Christ brought was the message of the kingdom of God being reestablished on our planet. Jesus' preaching consisted of one main theme. He announced the good news, the very best news that could ever be heard, that our Father in heaven has sent His Son to establish, to inaugurate His kingdom on earth. And now we are living in that in-between parentheses of time between His first coming and His second coming. And I'm going to, because my time is... Is escape me, I'm going to skip over to the book of Revelation, to these verses where we read, this is the, the second return of Jesus Christ, where he's going to finish what he started. And we're in that in-between moment of time where we're longing, John, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, that we're, we're groaning with anticipation. There's, a, there's this restlessness, there's this emptiness, there's this boredom that we have, wanting something more. We know there's got to be something more. We know there's a perfection. Because our hearts have been created to long for this kingdom. God has put eternity in our hearts. And in Revelation 11.15 it says the kingdom. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return. And John sees it. And he shares a vision of what, it will, what will happen. Of what it will look like. And he says the kingdom's of this world has become. 
the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. (laughs) Amen. Don't you love that? Let me read it again. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom that lies under the deception of the evil one, under the lawlessness of the evil one, that kingdom, the kingdom of this world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. And then Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, it's these tears, it's the pain, it's the limitations of life that we experience that the evil one, the deceiver, will cause us to doubt the loving kindness of God. But he's going to wipe away those tears. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, the Bible is not simply a bundle of unrelated divergent stories as is sometimes taught in Sunday schools. But the Bible consists of a single drama. The entrance of the kingdom. The power and the glory of the living God coming in this enemy-occupied territory. And from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the Bible, and indeed until the end of all time, there unfolds this single, coherent drama of the kingdom striking back. This would make a great title for the Bible, wouldn't it? If it were pr- printed in modern, modern language. The kingdom striking back. God's message, the kingdom striking back. For the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible is the story of God's kingdom being launched on earth as it is in heaven, generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated And the new creation has been decisively launched in Jesus Christ. And Jesus' followers have been commissioned and equipped to put that victory and that inaugurated new world into practice. Has God given you a heart for this kingdom? The last word that John says in chapter 3 that we read says that He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we will know these kind of things. And I believe that the Spirit of God has been here maybe turning some light bulb on and giving you some hope and helping you look forward to the full reality of that kingdom. Friends, don't despair with the limitations of life that we have in this world. His kingdom is coming. Pray every day. Long for His kingdom to come. For the full reality of that perfect relationship, that perfect union where God will dwell with man. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that 
you will take a hopelessness today and transform it into a great hope in Jesus Christ, the anchor of our souls. Lord, may your people be anchored this morning, anchored steadfast in this hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to establish the kingdom of God on earth and of the increase of that government, there shall be no end. Lord, Holy Spirit, you are the great persuader of our hearts. You are the revealer of all God's truth to us. I pray that you will do that right now in this moment of time and in our deep inner knower within our hearts. Help us to know how much we are loved. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. We look forward to that, Lord. That day when we shall see you as you are. And be like you, Jesus. Guard the hearts that you have given us this morning. That the devil, the evil one, will not rob us of the heart that is inclined to know the love of God. And may our hearts be born anew, born into the kingdom today, Lord. Let your spirit cause us to be reborn, a great rebirth this morning, a rebirth of hope, a rebirth of faith in Jesus Christ. That your kingdom would come alive and afresh and real, that we won't pin our hopes in this Christmas season that's going to give us what we need. But Lord, we pin our hopes in Jesus Christ, the real reason for the season. We thank you for this in your wonderful name. Amen.